You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. We come to you by your Spirit. You are three in one, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us one. Uh, The several hundred people that are uh, here uh, right now, Lord, the children who are in Harvest Kids right now, the people who are at our first service, would you unite us by the power of your Spirit, Lord? May you use your word uh, right now. God, I pray in the name of Jesus for uh, strength in the midst of weakness. I pray for your spirit to give uh, clarity and power as your living and active word is open. And so, God, I pray that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, that you would confront those who need to be uh, confronted, challenge those who need to be challenged. God, that your word would accomplish its purpose, that there would be uh, evidence of your spirit at work as your word is proclaimed right now. And so, God, we pray for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can open up your Bible there. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can put one in your hands. They're just coming up and down the aisle for people that might have left theirs at home. Or if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We're starting a new series today called uh, This is Our Church. I'm taking a a look at what it means uh, to be the church. Now, Uh, Looking out at you today, I know for sure that some of you are bored. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I I just know. I know some of you are bored. Uh, You got dragged to church. Your parents always go to church, so here you are. You don't want to be here. You're just flat out bored. Maybe your neighbor invited you or, or you, you're, you're married to someone who believes in Jesus and so you just come along for the ride but it's just sort of like, I hope this guy doesn't talk too long. You, you're, you're just bored. When you, when you think about church, you, you're, you're bored. I know others of you are, are busy. Just so busy at church. I mean, you were here setting up the chairs in the morning, you were serving in children's ministry in the first service, then you're here, here for worship right before you can get ready for your next meeting or the thing that's happening this afternoon, you're involved in a small group, in a men's group, and you're not even women, but you're involved in a women's group and all these things. And you're, just, you're, you're so busy. And church for you is just all of these activities that you're getting and you're, and, and you're, you're so involved in so many different things. I know some of you who used to be busy, now you would not categorize yourself that way because you're not doing anything. You'd categorize yourself as burned out. You tried that for a couple of years, going to all the church events, trying to be involved, every opportunity to sign up, and, and all of a sudden you realized that there was, there was just nothing left in the tank. And you, you realized that out of your serving, what was really happening, it wasn't coming from an internal passion, it was coming from exterior pressure. And you just sort of said, enough is enough. You know what, I'm, I, I need a break. I, I'm completely burned out. I just feel so numb to the things of God that I, I just need to sit and to stop. Some of you may not be burned out. You're, you're just burned. 
Maybe it happened here at Harvest Bible Chapel. Maybe it happened at a, a, another uh, congregation where you really laid yourself out there. You really shared your heart. You were really vulnerable with some people. And what you received in response really stung. Maybe it was a, a word that was given intentional or or unintentional uh, uh, in front of a large group or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, just so much insensitivity, just, just such a lack of understanding, just, just, just such a, a trifling way of speaking about something that mattered to you so deeply and you feel burned. So whether you're here today, if you're, if you're bored or really busy, burned out or just burned, it's time for us to take a closer look at what it means to be the church. Because we, we shouldn't be in any of those categories this morning. And the problem is, is that so often an incomplete or flat out incorrect definition of what it means to be the church leads to all of these problems. And so what we're going to do today is, is you're not going to hear my opinion on what the church is. You're, you're going to hear what God's word says about the church. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 to 15, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. What we're going to see from this passage are three pictures, three vivid illustrations that, that give us a sense of what, what did God intend in bringing us all together? What are we supposed to be doing? Who are we? What are we? Whose are we? And we need to get clear on that if we are going to move forward together as a community of God to fulfill the mission that God has given us of making disciples and loving him and loving our neighbor. The first one is going to be a picture of relationships. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down. The church is relational. The church is relational. Paul said, I hope to come to you. He's talking to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon. He has a relationship. He wants to visit Timothy. They're, they're in relationship with one another. But then he speaks about the relationships within the church. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The household of God. The, the Greek word there is, is oikos. And it, it refers to the idea, not the, not the house itself, the structure, but the people who are living under that roof. The family that makes that house a home. And that is the, the illustration that Paul uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach us what the church is supposed to be like. The church is not a, a business or a corporation. The church is not an entertainment center. The church is supposed to be a family. And if we're going to relate to one another as a family, we first and foremost need to understand how we relate to God. The reason why we are a family is because God is our Father. 
And you'll never be able to view the people who are sitting beside you as brothers and sisters until you truly grasp what it means for God to choose to make you his son or his daughter. And to experience that yourself and then to realize that the person beside you and in front of you and behind you, they've had the same experience, that we share that in common, that we are part of God's family. J.I. Packer wrote that if, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. And some of us, we do, we have this very individual, personal relationship with God where we relate to him as father, but we don't think about the implications for other people who call God their father. If you have the same father, then you got a lot of brothers from another mother. Then you have a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the oikos, part of the family of God. See, God knows what we need. And God has given us exactly what, what we need. We need to be part of this family of God. We live in a world of rampant narcissism. A narcissism is really just a, a fancy word for being a, a absorbed with, with vanity, absorbed with self, always only ever thinking about yourself. And uh, this is a narcissist. Narcissist was was a, a, a mythical character who was very attractive, very successful. And, and one day he caught a glimpse of himself in a very still, shallow pool. And he just couldn't stop looking at himself. He was so focused, narcissist was so focused on himself that he literally died there. He decayed by looking at, worshiping his own image. We live in a world in which people are obsessed with themselves. We may not be looking at a pool, but we're looking at something like this. The irony is so incredible that we've taken something like the telephone that is supposed to connect us to other people. And it has completely become all about us. But here's the thing, loved ones. It's not the phone's fault. It's not technology's fault. It's an issue of the heart. And God loves us. And he doesn't want us to live as, as narcissists. He, he, he doesn't want us to live only for ourselves and think only for ourselves. He wants us to experience the joy of living in community with other people, putting other people's needs ahead of your own. But you will never start to look around until you look up and get your eyes off yourself and see that God loves you as a father. And then to begin to look around to your brothers and sisters. That's God's beautiful intention for us. This is what we were created to be. Genesis 1.27, God says, let us make man in our image. God has eternally existed in the form of a community called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in Genesis 1, he said, let us make man in our image. And then it says, male and female, he created them in his image. That the, 
the male and the female, in the context of community, that is a way in which we reflect the image of God. The next chapter, Genesis 2, God says, it's not good that the man is alone. We were not meant to be alone. We were not meant to only live for ourselves. We were meant to live in relationship. We were created for community. And so, loved ones, family, family is, is, is the metaphor that Paul uses. Families share together. They share space. They share resources. They share thoughts. They share their feelings. Families communicate with one another. Families love one another. Families know that they belong to one another. Harvest Bible Chapel is not a place where you attend. It's a place where you belong. It's a place where you love, where you share, where you communicate. This is, this is what we're going after as a church, to live out this vision that Paul lays out of the household of God. And so we need to be a place where we are fostering relationships. And what are you doing to foster relationships in our church? Maybe for you today it means that you're going to stick around for a few more minutes after the service rather than bolting it for the parking lot. And just getting to know some people. Just, just standing around and walking up to someone who you haven't met before and and making that kind of connection. Maybe it's getting involved in our young adults or our men's or women's ministry or, or our youth ministry, which starts on Tuesday night, to experience part of being that family or joining a small group, to take that extra step to make sure that you are knowing others and that others know you in this church. We've got to understand that there's, there's really no hope for relationships without vulnerability. And wherever there's vulnerability, chances are someone's going to get hurt. It's like the people I mentioned at the beginning, the people who have been burned. And I don't ever want to give the impression that we're somehow this special church, that you might have got hurt at your old church, but you're not going to get hurt at this church. That, that, that's not in the fine print. We want to be abundantly clear. Chances are, you're going to get hurt at Harvest Bible Chapel. Chances are, it might be me. It's, it's, it's not that we're trying to create an environment in which there's never a misunderstanding, there's never a conflict, where someone doesn't ever speak out of turn. Now the issue is, listen, families, there's a lot of family pain, isn't there? But families find a way to stay intact and to work through it. And that's what church families need to do as well. And so we're not here saying that we're going to create this ideal, perfect Christian fellowship of community where everyone gets along. That's what we're aiming at, but we know that there will be times in which we will hurt one another. That's why the New Testament tells us to forgive one another, speaking in the context of the church. That's why two chapters after Jesus introduced the whole concept of church in Matthew 16, already in Matthew 18, he's already doing damage control of here what to do if someone sins against you. So we need to be prepared. If we're going to be vulnerable, chances are we might get hurt. And, and it's, a, it's, an, it's, it's a matter of do we trust our Father to be vulnerable with our brothers and sisters? We need to be pursuing relationship and the vulnerability that goes along with that. Furthermore, with relationship and in the context of a family, there's always responsibility. 
In, in every well-functioning home, people know their role. They know their duty. They know their responsibility. There are certain things that certain members of the family are relied upon to do. There are certain chores or activities that, that need to be carried out by certain family members. And it's the same within the church. We all have a responsibility to shoulder the weight of what it means to function as the family of God. And so are you bearing some of that responsibility? Are you joyfully, out of your love for God and your love for other brothers and sisters, finding an avenue in which you can serve your brothers and sisters in the context of the local church? The church is relational. Then Paul goes on to say, after he mentions household of God, it says, which is, to explain further, <clears throat> which is the church of the living God, the church of the living God, jot this down to your notes, that the church is supernatural. The church is supernatural. <clears throat> One of the incredible things about, about the relationships within the church is that you have people who are close to one another that under normal circumstances wouldn't have anything to do with each other. And that is completely supernatural. We live, we live in a world that is divided. Let's be honest. We live in a city that's pretty divided. Geographically, ethnically, racially. You go to certain places, certain pockets. You can see the division. You walk into certain situations. You experience it, don't you? you all of us, at, at one time or another, walk into some place in the city of Brampton and we're like, I do not belong here. It's just clear. We live in a divided city. But you walk into Harvest Bible Chapel. It doesn't matter. Every single person, every single person should walk in here and say, I belong here. Amen. Amen. Because it's a supernatural act of God. And our unity in this city is such a testimony to the power of God. It's a beautiful thing. People who would normally divide, be divided by age or by, or by economics or by their race or ethnicity, none of these, or by their education, none of these things are factors in the church. That word church there, the, the Greek behind it is, is ekklesia. And uh, in the word ecclesia is, 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 is the word uh, for calling. And, and the ecclesia are the people who have been called out. And we are people who have been called out, out of the city of Brampton or Mississauga or Bolton or Orangeville or Georgetown or Malton or, or wherever you happen to be coming from. We have been called out, called together to be the church. The church the, the word ecclesia, it means assembly. It means those who have been called out, called together. And it's the ecclesia, it's the church, it says here, of the living God. See, this is the amazing thing. This is the supernatural thing. As you're not here today because I called you. You're not here today because your parents called you. You're not here today because your friend called you. No, God himself called you. He is, it's the church, the called out ones of the living God. He is the one that does the calling. And that, that 
in, in a world that is continually trying to find rational explanations for things, that, that is continually trying to view things through the secular humanist lens in which there must be a sociological or, or psychological or scientific explanation for why things are happening, the church just continues to stand and say, here we are. You can't explain this. You can't explain what God is doing, and that's why, because we are the church of the living God. Something supernatural is taking place. You see, the the same God who created biological life is also the creator of spiritual life. The same God who said, let there be light, and spoke into the darkness, he also said, let there be light, and spoke into the darkness of our hearts. The same God who spoke the universe into existence has spoken to us. And as you go through the pages of the New Testament and the prophecies in the Old Testament, God has promised to specially, specifically manifest his presence right here. You might think if you want to see the glory of God, you need to go to the shore of the Pacific Ocean and see its vastness. And listen to the waves crashing against the beach. Or you need to climb up on a high mountain and witness a sunset. And and, oh, isn't that the glory of God that the New Testament tells us? If you want to see the glory of God, it doesn't give you a travel brochure. It says if you want to know the glory of God, it says go to church. This is where God has promised to have his glory dwell. This church was founded on Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21, which ends, To him be glory in the church. This is, where, this is God's choice. God has chosen to manifest his glory in our midst. He has promised to do something so powerful and profound in our midst. But so often we lose sight of that. So often we lose sight of the fact that this is the church of the living God. I was on the phone with Ray Kaprowski this week. We, we talk every, every Friday. He went off and planted Harvest Bible Chapel, Ottawa. He's a, a dear friend of mine and of many of us. And do you remember how Ray used to always say, it's never just another Sunday. And Ray has this, this wonderful way of, of, of fostering expectation in his own heart and among the people that he's trying to lead that, that when we get together, we should be expecting God to do things. Paul wrote in sort of a, the context of what an ideal church service would look like would be 1 Corinthians 14, 25, that if an unbeliever were to come to church, this is what would happen, that falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see, we, we believe that when God's people get together and sing, there's something supernatural. When God's people get together and pray, there's something supernatural. When God's people get together and just talk and connect and welcome one another, something supernatural happens. When his word is preached, that I'm praying that something supernatural would happen today, that a life would be transformed. This is what we're invited to, beloved ones. We need to understand every time that we don't do our part, every time where we don't go deep into those relationships, every time where we don't fulfill those responsibilities, loved ones, we're we're short-circuiting and sabotaging the work of God in us and through us. And so don't neglect what God has provided don't just stand on the, on the edge. Jump right in into the life of his church. He is the living God. 
I love how uh, John Stott, the great Anglican scholar and a pastor, put it in this way. He said, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It's not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, conceived in past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely be central to our lives. How dare we take lightly what God takes seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? It's, it's the church of the living God. This is who we are. And so you, you, it, you really can't stay bored in church. That's just not right. Because God is not boring. God is, is, is the most uh, amazing, uh, amazing concept or being that could ever enter into our minds. You can't just be busy doing a whole bunch of things. You can't allow being burned out or burned. You can't, you can't allow that to define you and to restrict you. You need to give those things to God who is your father. And you need to pursue community with those he has placed in your midst. So the church is relational, the church is supernatural, and then lastly, the church is immovable. The church is immovable. At the end of verse 15, he calls the church a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He uses an architectural mat metaphor here. The Greek word for uh, pillar is a stylos, and that's where we get the idea of stylus. It's just referring to it to a cylinder, you know, like a pen, a stylus. And so a pillar is like, is, is something in a building. It's, it's a narrow column that is holding something up. And then a, a buttress, the Greek word there is hydreoma, uh, and uh, I had difficulty pronouncing it because it only appears in the New Testament once. Um, it's translated... Uh, differently in just about every English translation in the Bible. So it's translated buttress in the ESV. Another translation calls it bulwark. Oh, that's really helpful. Oh, a bulwark. I didn't understand buttress, but now that you say bulwark, I'm just right there with you. Um, other translations say foundation, a ground, a support. Uh, a buttress in, in present-day architecture and architecture in the Roman world was you'd have a pillar and then a buttress would be sort of be on an angle like this to make sure that the pillar stayed up. The idea is that there's something, it's strong and it's stable. The church is strong and stable. It's not going anywhere. And the job of the church, our role is to hold up the truth. Our role is to, is to hold up that which corresponds to reality. That's, that's the simplest definition of truth. That which corresponds, that which describes reality. But we need, to, we need to understand that the truth by nature is exclusive. It is, it is 
absolute, it's objective, it's universal, it's inescapable, it's unchangeable, and it's, it's exclusive. Two plus two equals four is universal. It doesn't matter if you're in Brampton or Bangladesh. It, wherever you go, two plus two always equals four. Two plus two applies to uh, young white males who are 38 years old. It applies to people of every other age, race, or gender. It, it, two plus two equals four is true for everyone. It, it's inescapable. Two plus two plus four is also exclusive. It rules out two plus two equals three. Two plus two, point, two plus two equals five. Two plus two equals ten isn't even close. It's four. And the truth is exclusive. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe that two plus two equals three. It doesn't matter how, how badly you want it to be true. If, if you want two plus two to equal six. It's exclusive, and we need, to, we need to understand this. And Desmond and Selena know this as they're ministering on university campuses. We have so many college and university students here. We, we have high school students here. We have people who are, who are working in the marketplace. We need to understand that when we stand for the truth, we will be accused of being exclusive, of being narrow-minded, of being unloving, of being unsympathetic. Because to stand for the truth means that you are in fact standing for something that is exclusive. And standing for something that does apply to everyone even if they don't want to apply it to their lives. And sometimes that can create a lot of friction in our schools and in our workplaces. That is why the New Testament goes to great pains to use phrases like, make sure your words are seasoned with salt. Or... or, in, in First Peter where it says, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. That's speak the truth. But then it says, do this with gentleness and with respect. Because in the same way, loved ones, that a physical house have forces that, that will potentially destroy that house if that house doesn't have structural integrity. Forces like nature. We're seeing that in the news, aren't we? Forces like age and decay. Forces like gravity. Gravity is pulling down on the building. It's, it's only natural. There are forces at play in a physical building to try to bring it down. The same is true. There are spiritual forces in the spiritual world that present a challenge for our spiritual building, the pillar and buttress. And there are things that are coming at us from our world. And, there are, and our, our whole world is changing. But listen, truth can't change. Two plus two equaled four when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Two plus two will equal four 60 years from now. It can't change. Some people think that the way for the church to grow and to adapt in our world today is to just to change in the way that the world's changing. But listen... The church will become stronger the more it's committed to never change. You know, some things, some, amen, some things will change, of course. I'm not talking about traditionalism. I'm talking about truth, okay? I'm not wearing the same clothes that a preacher would have worn 100 years ago. We're not singing the same songs that, that some churches would have sung 400 years ago. Some things change. But some things absolutely have to stay the same. And that's what God has called us to, to be a pillar and a buttress, this immovable force. 
And our job is to hold up the truth, to protect it, to promote it, and to practice it, to live it in our lives. Loved ones, the church is not going anywhere, despite what you might hear in our popular media or anything. The church is here to stay. It's immovable. I mean, in, in Paul's time, shortly after Paul wrote this letter, they started throwing Christians to the lions, and the church only grew as a result. In China, in the last century, they kicked all of the missionaries out. Now there's more Christians in, in China than there are Canadians in Canada. You can't stop that you can't stop the church. It is the most powerful institution on planet Earth. I'm not exaggerating. It's immovable. There's no parallel. It is God's plan. It is part, and listen, when you choose to involve yourself in the local church, you're, you're, you're involved in something that's relational, something that is supernatural, and loved ones, something that is immovable, something that that. No power, no government, no culture or society can, can ever take away or destroy. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Who put the pillar there? Who put the buttress there? It was Jesus. And he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's no stopping. There's no stopping. But again, when we interact with our neighbors, when we interact with our coworkers, when we act with our students and our fellow, um, or, or, and our, our, our teachers, we do it with gentleness and respect. We do it with kindness and courage and love and clarity. So what is this truth that we are supposed to be holding up? What, what is it that we're supposed to be presenting to the world well, in verse 16, the Apostle Paul quotes uh, a song. It would have been a, a popular song that they would have sung at that time. It doesn't come through in English here, but in Greek, uh, each line here in the stanza, they all rhyme. And it's a beautifully crafted poem. And Paul says in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Before he quotes the song, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. The, I want to be clear about, about mystery here. When he says the mystery of godliness, it's more like he's talking about a really good novel, not about the Bermuda Triangle. Okay, when we talk about the Bermuda Triangle... We say things like, I don't know, man, ships seem to disappear and airplanes crash and it's, it's just a mystery. No one really knows what, what it is, just a mystery. That's not what godliness is. The mystery of godliness is like a really good mystery novel. No one hands you a novel and says, hey, you should read this. No one knows what it's about. No one can really understand what's going on. No. You read the novel, you say, you got to read this, man. Because it seems like it's not making sense and then some things happen and then the last four or five pages it all comes together. When the New Testament talks about mystery, it's like a mystery novel. It's the idea that this, this concept of the church, this concept of Jesus coming, that it never really seemed to make sense, but now we know it. We've read the last four or five pages. We've seen how the story ends. It all makes sense. That's what he means when he says the mystery of godliness. And then this poem seems to, at first glance, 
follow chronologically the events in Jesus' life. He was manifested in the flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, that God came down to earth as a human. It's called the incarnation, taking on flesh and then vindicated by the Spirit. To, to, to be vindicated is to be proven right. And, and that's, that could be referring to, to the resurrection, that Jesus was proven to be the Son of God when he rose from the dead. A seen by angels, another way to translate the word angel, angel it would, would simply be messenger. So the, the apostles who were the messengers, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then they went out and proclaimed among the nations. That's what's described in the book of Acts. And believed on in the world, that's the church growing, and then taken up in glory. The only trouble with viewing it chronologically is taken up in glory is at the very end. Where taken up in glory should be somewhere around seen by angels or seen by the messengers because they saw him go up. They saw him taken up in glory. Another way to look at this poem is in the realm of the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. What we could see with our eyes and, and what is happening behind the scenes spiritually speaking. So it starts with manifested in the flesh, same deal, Jesus being born in a manger, God becoming flesh, the incarnation but vindicated by the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit was, was proving that Jesus was the Son of God all along the way. At his baptism, he descended like a dove when the Father said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. It was the Spirit who was empowering Jesus to perform all of these miracles, and ultimately it was the Spirit, as it says in Romans 1, that raised Jesus from the dead. So the Spirit was vindicating Jesus all along. So he was manifested in the flesh, but he was being vindicated in the power of the Spirit, in the, in the spiritual realm. And then the poem goes on to say that he was seen by angels. So when he was raised from the dead, he went up to paradise as he promised the thief on the cross. He was seen by the angels. And then that was happening in the spiritual realm. And then he was proclaimed among the nations in the, in the earthly realm. And this is what we saw. We didn't see Jesus being seen by the angels. That was happening spiritually. And then proclaimed by the nations and believed on in the world and Jesus had been taken up into glory. See, whether you view this poem chronologically or whether you view it sort of thematically here by the earthly realm and the spiritual realm, here, here's the beautiful picture, is that Jesus brought heaven to earth. That Jesus came down to dwell among us on earth so that we could go and dwell with him in heaven. That is the truth that the church is the pillar and the buttress of. That is what we are called to belong to. That is what makes us a family. That makes us the church of the living God. That God sent his son to earth to live 33 years of sinless perfection. And then to suffer and die on a cruel cross. To bear the punishment and the blame that I deserve and that all of us deserve for our sin. And to say that it is finished and to be buried and to be raised again. So that we, as he has raised in God to the Father, we too can be raised and go with him. That is the truth that we proclaim. That is why we are a pillar and a buttress. That is what ultimately we stand for as a church. It all starts and ends with Jesus. He is the one building the church. He is the source of our church. He is the reason why our church exists. He brought heaven to earth. And so when we gather, we gather as a family. 
We gather as those who have been called out. And we gather as those who are part of something that is immovable because it is based on this gospel, this truth of Christ coming to save us. So let's bow our heads together and pray. And so Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths of your word. And we pray right now in the name of Jesus that by your spirit you would be working in each of our hearts, Lord. God, for those who are bored or busy, Lord, for those who may find themselves burned out or burned God, that we would consider what the church is and what you have called us to, and that we wouldn't define ourselves as bored, busy, burned out, or burned, but that we define ourselves as blessed, blessed to be part of your family, blessed to be part of a, a supernatural work of God that is absolutely immovable. So God, we pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.